Amen. Well, there is no power like the mighty name of Jesus. What a timely and relevant declaration for us here this morning and so true. Well, if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab that, get that open to Luke chapter 11. We're going to continue worshiping through the reading and preaching of the word. Well, uh, good news. We've officially been in the gospel of Luke for a year now. This is our 53rd sermon out of this book. Uh, And it's been just such an amazing experience, hasn't it? We hope that your faith has grown just a little bit more over this past year and that you've learned just a little bit more about the character of your God. I know that I have over this past year. And we're gonna continue working through Luke's gospel account this year as well. We've got some amazing passages of scripture coming up and we've mapped out our sermon plan through Easter and we're excited for where God is taking us this year. But my main excitement, however, is for us here this morning. I am so excited to dive into our scripture today. You see, Jesus is kicking his kingdom work up a notch in our passage here today. Uh, he's taking the kid gloves off, I guess, if, 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 if that's a, a right way to describe this. And, and listen, I love when Jesus takes the kid gloves off, right? Like, it's just nice to get punched in the mouth every once in a while, right? I, I know I, I enjoy that. And listen, we, we serve a God who is not some docile, spineless pacifist, right? Like we serve a strong and mighty God who is violently for us. We serve a God who levels mountains and unravels battles right in front of our eyes, a God who presses forward, who takes ground, a God who is dangerous to the enemy's camp, who has the power to tie up the enemy and rob him blind. We serve a God who will stop at nothing to tear down the strongholds that would keep us in chains and then rescue us from bondage and slavery. See, our God is powerful and relentless and his name is Jesus, amen? Amen. What we're gonna see this morning is that Jesus alone has the power to overcome the tactics of the enemy. He alone has the power to disarm the lies of the devil that would keep our hearts and minds in bondage to slavery. We're gonna see this morning that Jesus is the only one who has the power to tie up Satan and free our hearts and minds from the chains of his control, we're gonna see this morning that every act of redemption is Jesus plundering what the enemy thinks is his. We're gonna see that Jesus has bound up that great dragon we call Satan, that strong man that would rule our hearts and is currently waging war to free the hearts and souls of men and women all around us. Jesus is the only one who has the power to overcome the enemy. If you walk away from this message with anything. I hope it's that, that Jesus is the only one who has the power to overcome the enemy. And so with your Bibles open, let's go ahead and read through our passage here today. Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 14. Now Jesus was casting out a demon that was mute. And when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. 
But some of them said he cast out demons by Baal Zebul, the prince of demons, while others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Baal-zebul. And if I cast out demons by Baal-zebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. You see, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever then is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Father in heaven, Lord, we're so thankful for your word. God, we're thankful for your grace, for your mercy, Lord, for your power over the enemy. And God, I just pray this morning, Lord, that your word would penetrate our hearts here today, Lord, that you would give me clear words and articulate thoughts, Lord, to be able to uh, speak your word with clarity. And Lord, it's all for your glory. Pray that your word would be lifted high. Your name will be lifted high this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, Jesus is the only one who can overcome the enemy, but I think it's still important for us to recognize point number one, that, G, that, that the enemy will lie to discredit Jesus. The enemy will lie to discredit Jesus. We see this clearly in verses 14 through 16. Jesus casts out this mute demon. He frees this guy from demonic oppression gives him new life. The people marvel at the power and the authority of Jesus. But some of the people immediately try to discredit Jesus by saying he casts out demons by Baal Zebul, the prince of demons. You see, the enemy will lie to discredit Jesus so that people won't believe. He does this by casting doubt on the the character and the authority of Jesus. You see, up to this point in Luke's narrative, Jesus, he's gathered this following. He's this massive crowd. We're gonna see in, in chapter 12 that it's literally thousands of people that are following Jesus. Everywhere he goes, he's gathering more and more people. And this is because of his ministry, right? Like he is constantly casting out demons. He's constantly healing the sick and the broken. He's constantly caring for the poor and the marginalized of society. The reality is that there are some people who do not like Jesus for whatever reason, And he has caught the attention and the ire of his enemies. Now, Matthew and Mark, when they record this account in their gospels, tell us that it was the scribes and the Pharisees who leveled this particular accusation against Jesus, probably because Jesus was growing in popularity and they were declining in popularity. And so in their selfish pride, they level the slanderous accusation against Jesus in hope of discrediting him, saying he casts out demons by Baal Zebul, the prince 
of demons. Now, I think it's important at this point to explain exactly who Beelzebu is. See, this name can be traced back to the Old Testament to an ancient false god of the Philistines and the Egyptians called Beelzebub. Beelzebub, and Beelzebub was the Lord of the Flies, the Lord of the Flies. Now, what's interesting about this is in the region where this God was worshiped, archeologists have actually found these golden images of flies in this area, in, in Egypt and in, in that surrounding area. Even some of the Egyptian leaders were buried with these golden flies in their tombs. And as time went on, and this God, Beelzebub, became irrelevant, the Jews changed this God's name to Beelzebul, which means the Lord of dung. <laughs> Some translate it the Lord of filth. And so they used this as an alternative name for Satan. See, Beelzebul, the Lord of dung, was where all the flies congregated. Now, I'm sure you can see where all of this nonsense is going. These Pharisees and scribes are basically claiming that Jesus is Beelzebul, the Lord of dung, that he is filled in with and possessed by this spirit of filth. Now, let's just pause for a second and marvel at the character of our God right now. Here's Jesus author and creator of heaven and earth, Messiah, listening to some fool call him the Lord of filth and the guy lives to tell the tale, right? Like, I don't know about you, but if I'm Jesus right now, like this clown's getting a lightning bolt to the mouth or something, right? Like, like at least I'm gonna appoint a fly for him to choke on in this thing, right? Like, like, but praise the Lord, I am not Jesus, right? And that our God is gracious and merciful to those who would be hateful and slanderous and accusatory to him. But the reality is that the enemy will level false accusation against, after false accusation against Jesus in order to discredit his good name and lead others away. We see this in our world today, don't we? The unbelieving world around us would tell us that Jesus isn't good. That he's not for you, that he's against you, that he's out to make your life a living hell or to steal your joy, that he's just some cosmic killjoy in the sky bent on your destruction. They tell us that God is just a crutch for weak people. Have you heard that one? It's interesting, this comes from a heart that has tried out a lot of different crutches and none of them seem to work, so they just assume that Jesus is no different. It's not just the unbelieving world that makes up lies about Jesus. We also see this in false teaching within the church. See, I truly believe that the greatest enemy to the church of Jesus Christ does not exist outside the church, but right inside Jude, the brother of Jesus, agrees with this sentiment. Jude's contribution to the Bible is a two-page essay condemning false teachers within the church. 
He writes, beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith for certain people have crept in unnoticed who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. See, false teaching in the church manifests itself by demanding religiosity, demanding adherence to man-made rules and regulations that Jesus never imposed upon us instead of promoting grace and faith and love for God and love for others. It looks like taking the word out of context and teaching with authority things that the word of God does not say. For example, have you heard this one? Money is the root of all evil. Guess what? The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible does not say that. No, the Bible says in 1 Timothy 6.10 that the love of money is the root of all evil. This, this worship of money, this idolatry, this, it's, it's not money itself, but the insatiable craving for more that causes some to abandon Christ for the idolatrous pursuit of wealth. That's what the Bible teaches. How about this one? Sex is bad and you should remain pure. No, that's not what the Bible teaches. Sex is a good and pure gift from God meant to be enjoyed in the context of a loving marriage between a husband and a wife. As a matter of fact, the Bible has an entire book dedicated to honoring the sexual relationship between a husband and a wife. It's called Song of Solomon. You should read it sometime. How about this? False teaching manifests itself in denying the exclusivity of Christ for salvation. There are people within the church who would tell you that all faiths lead to eternal life, that, that, that all gods and the worship of all things lead to eternal life. But the Bible is clear. Acts 4.12 reminds us that there is salvation in nobody else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. False teaching manifests itself by not teaching on the fullness of God's character, elevating one characteristic above all the rest. Yes, he is a loving God, but he's also just and righteous and jealous. Yes, he is sovereign, but he's also gracious and loving and merciful. And we need to recognize that God has lots of characteristics and they're all equal. But it's not just unbelievers and false teaching, but this, these lies can creep into our own thoughts as well, can't they? See, if we're not careful, we can tend to believe lies and cast doubt on the character of Jesus. And this happens when our prayers go, un, un, uh, when our prayers go unanswered. We question his goodness, believing the lie that he's not for us. This happens during trials and difficulties of life. We question God's sovereignty, believing the lie that he does not have a good plan, that he is not working all things together for our good and his glory. It looks like uh, we believe these lies when we misunderstand his word or believe bad theology and we begin to question the authority of the word of God in our lives and believe the lie that truth is relative and not absolute. 
See, in all of this, the danger is letting these things fester in our hearts and in our thoughts. And when this happens, we subtly begin to discredit Jesus and doubt his good character. See, the enemy will try his best to spread lies about Jesus in order to draw our hearts away from truth. But the good news is this, point number two, the truth of Jesus disarms the lies of the enemy. The truth of Jesus disarms the lies of the enemy. Look back at verse 17. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Baal-zebul, and if I cast out demons by Baal-zebul, why or by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. I absolutely love the wisdom of Jesus here in this passage. It says that he knew their thoughts. He was able to, as Hebrews 4.12 tells us, he was able to discern the thoughts and intentions of their hearts. See, this knowing that Jesus has is way more, way deeper than simply reading somebody's mind. That's not necessarily what it's talking about. What it's talking about is the fact that he created us. He knows us. He knows how we reason. He knows how we interpret and comprehend the world around us. He knows our nature and he knows how sin has uniquely affected our reasoning and our interpretation and our comprehension, our decision-making. This is why Isaiah calls him the wonderful counselor. And it's in this unique knowing that Jesus answers this ridiculous accusation by saying every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and a divided household falls. See, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, answers their prideful hearts and foolish accusations with simple logic. A kingdom divided can't stand and a household divided can't stand, right? Like this is a universal truth. How many families do you see ripped apart by divorce? A divided household cannot stand. How many nations do you see that are prospering in the midst of civil war? Answer, none. See, it's at this point that Jesus just goes full counselor mode. It starts asking some seriously good questions. See, Jesus is the wonderful counselor. He knows that questions convict our hearts in a way that accusations don't. And so by asking these good questions of these Pharisees, Jesus gently but firmly exposes the foolish lies of the enemy. He asks, how can Satan cast out Satan and still prosper? Answer, he can't. Like anyone with half a brain can answer that question correctly. Then he hits them with this follow-up question. If I cast out demons by the power of Satan, then by whose power do your sons, your protégés, your apprentices, your Jewish exorcists, who do they cast out demons by? Surely it's the power of God and not the enemy and so Jesus dismantles this foolish logic with his excellent questions. But not only does he expose the lies of the enemy, he also directs us back to truth. He makes us consider what then is truth? 
Okay, if Satan isn't casting out Satan, then, 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 then by what power is this, is this happening? And so Jesus makes this airtight argument for himself, directing people back to the truth. He says, if it's by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then that means that the kingdom of God has come upon you. Basically, Jesus is giving us two options here. Either Satan is destroying his own kingdom, not likely, or God is destroying Satan's kingdom, most likely. <laughs> I love the argument that Jesus makes here because in it, he teaches us how to take every thought captive. Second Corinthians 10, three says, for though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Jesus gives us a first-hand account of how to do this. He takes this, this lofty opinion, this argument that's raised against him, you cast out demons by Satan. And he just absolutely dismantles it by, with, with universal logic. That's not even possible. And then he replaces the truth or the lie with the truth. It's by the kingdom or it's by the power of God that I cast out demons. See, the truth of Jesus disarms the lies of the enemy. And point number three, he is the only one who can free us from the enemy's chains. Jesus is the only one who can free us from the enemy's chains. Now that Jesus has exposed the lie of the enemy and redirected our hearts back to the truth, he gives us this parable, which I think is the main point of this entire passage of scripture. Like this is the most important part of this passage. He gives us this parable. He says this, when a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than him attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. So what is Jesus talking about here? That's a great question. So glad you asked. You see, the strong man of the palace is Satan, fully armed with the hearts and minds of those who he has successfully deceived with his lies and half-truths. The palace is the world. The palace is the world. Satan has set up shop and has made this world his palace, his kingdom. He is actively engaging in deception, influencing nations and governments, causing war, strife, and calamity. And this has been happening since Genesis 3. The goods that he is guarding are the unbelieving hearts of people all around us, those who are under his control, those who are chained to idolatry, deceived by his lies and tricked into his bidding. But praise the Lord, the stronger man is Jesus. See, Jesus is the one who has declared war on Satan, who has attacked the devil, who overcomes them. Matthew and Mark, in, in their account of this story, say that he binds him up. So Jesus has tied up the enemy, put him in a corner while he's robbing his house. That's who Jesus is. See, Jesus is the stronger man. Listen, guys, this is the hope and the, and the message and the story of the gospel, 
Jesus is the only one who can tie up Satan and rob him of all his stuff. 1 John 3, 8 tells us that the son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. Galatians 5, 1 tells us that it's for freedom Christ has set us free. Every act of redemption is Jesus plundering what the enemy thinks is his. Every heart that is freed from the chains of addiction and slavery is the enemy plundering what the enemy thinks is his. Every mind that would be brought to Christ is Jesus plundering what the enemy thinks is his. Every baptism is Jesus plundering what the enemy thinks is his. Every bit of Jesus pushing forward his kingdom is him plundering what the enemy thinks is his. Amen? Amen. This is the good news of the gospel. See, the reality is that without Jesus as savior, we are destined to believe the lies of the enemy. We're destined to resort to turning to false gods and false saviors that promise a false hope or a temporary happiness or freedom. See, without Jesus as savior, things like wealth and health become our idols only to realize that our bodies are temporary and our wealth only allows us to live like a king for a brief moment. See, without Jesus as savior, we can tend to worship sex and pleasure, entertainment and comfort, believing that it will grant us all that we are so desperately longing for only to be let down time and time and time again. See, without Jesus as savior, we make idols out of marriage and relationships, hoping that the people around us will give us all we want and all we need only to be disappointed over and over and over and over again. Second Peter 2.19 tells us that we will worship these false gods even in chains and bondage. We see this in our world today, chains of addiction, chains of adultery, chains of fornication and lies and gossip and slander, chains of hatefulness and vengefulness, chains of self-harm and brutality. Second Timothy chapter three gives you an entire list of things. See, and these chains are the only thing that the lies of the enemy have to offer us. I heard a pastor say one time that sin will take you further than you ever intended to go keep you longer than you ever intended to stay and cost you more than you ever intended to pay. See, Jesus is the only one who can free us from the strong hand of the enemy. Jesus is the only one who can tie up Satan and steal back our hearts. Jesus is the only one who can give us a hope and a future. He's the only one who can break the chains of sin and death and reorient our hearts back to truth. We need Jesus. We need a stronger man to set us free from these chains. And this is good news that Jesus does this for us, but this also means that there's a vital implication for us to consider here this morning. And that leads me to our fourth and last point of the day. You are either with Jesus or you're against him. You're either with Jesus or you are against him. He says in verse 23, whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters. 
seeing a final rebuke to those who had claimed that he is the Lord of dung, Jesus reminds the people that anyone not on his side is on the wrong side. And not only that, but Jesus goes so far to say that anyone not engaged in the kingdom work alongside him is actually standing in opposition to the mission of God. He reminds us that we're either for Jesus or we are against him. You see, there's no neutral ground, no room for objectivity in this war. This is a war for our hearts and our souls, our minds and our thought, this, thoughts. This war involves us whether we recognize it or not. The question that should echo through all of our hearts and minds this morning is this, are we with Jesus or are we against him? Are we with Jesus or are we against him? Again, there's no neutral ground. There's no fence to sit on. As Pastor Ernie says all the time, the devil owns the fence. If we're not actively building the kingdom of Christ, then that means we're actively building an opposing kingdom. See, there are no passive spectators in this life, only active worshipers And inaction is an act of opposition to the kingdom of God. And so Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So whose kingdom? Whose kingdom am I actively engaged in? Who or what am I submitting my life to? Who or what owns the allegiance of my heart and my mind and my desires? So as we wrap up our time here this morning, I've got a challenge for us. For those of you who are in the room who know Jesus, my challenge for you this week is to spend some time in the word and in prayer, considering where am I not for God's kingdom? Where do I need to change? Where do I need to grow? How can I better be for his kingdom and not my own? Ask the Lord to reveal these areas to you as you walk through your week as you, in your day-to-day activities and as you engage with the people around you. Consider how can I be more for his kingdom than I am for my own? For those of you who are here today and you don't know Jesus, my challenge for you is do not leave here today without talking to someone about Jesus. Hope and freedom is available to you today. Jesus is the strong man plundering the works of the enemy. And he will set your heart free. So I'm gonna ask the prayer team to come forward right now. We're gonna have this team underneath this screen and this screen. They would love to pray with you. They'd love to have that conversation with you. So do not leave here today without making a decision for Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, God, we're so thankful for your grace, God, for your mercy. Lord, that you are the stronger man that plunders the works of the enemy. It's in Jesus' name that I pray, amen.